Welcome to Bestech Public Procurement Podcast. Today we're talking about non-institutionalized cooperation after Statcom case and cooperation in academia. Welcome to Bestech, the Public Procurement Podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hi, Willem. <laughs> good, good afternoon, evening, or whenever you're listening. Um, it's, it's good to be back. It is. It has been a second. We actually uh, were just discussing before we hit record that it feels like we're starting from very scratch, isn't it? It feels like we did it a long time ago. You're right. And I think um, maybe it has been a long time. We had a, at least a summer break in between. Um, I don't know if we really announced this to everyone, but anyways, we took a break and we're back. Yeah. And in the midst of all of that, actually, in both of our lives, tons of stuff happened. So it does feel in many ways like it's been a long time ago, hey? Yeah, for for sure. (laughs) Uh, 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 Let's just say a lot has happened. Um, My family has expanded and I'm sleeping a lot less. But uh, Official congratulations on the new new, uh, addition, for sure. Okay, so today we tried to um, actually, or what we are doing is we're flipping the coin a little bit. So our last episode when we discussed frameworks... um, Willem was pretty much interviewing me and gave me a, a, a platform to actually rant a little bit about the area of research that I have been working on. And today we're doing the opposite thing. So today we're talking about the public-public cooperation and the non-institutionalized cooperation specifically. And um, Willem, you spent some time on digging into all this sort of aspects of, of procurement. Isn't that true? Yeah, for sure. So this is actually part of my uh, my PhD that I uh, finished in 2018. Um, it was one of the types of uh, service performance that I researched for, for, for that uh, research project. Um, and, and this is by far the most complicated one. Um, I think if you can find me a person that truly understands what's going on in this type of cooperation, and particularly what, what's happened with the law over the last couple of years... Um, I think one, you'd, it'd be very hard to find someone, and I actually don't think you'll find someone. Um, but let's see if we can, um, if the court, particularly in the Stott Köln case that you were talking about, the court found some, uh, maybe some new, um, or at least, yeah, if the court is reaching out his hand or her hand to us in terms of interpretation. Um, but maybe let's maybe let's start with Article Twelve. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I think we should try to shed some light on this and and point out into some of these aspects of new developments. So I would ask you, uh, Willem, kindly, if you could just sort of describe or, you know, sort of draw a backdrop of this conversation or this debate for us, where we are, what's been going on, and what was the sort of background uh, before the Satcon case uh, landed at the court's uh, lap, so to speak? All right, let's do that. So I think it all starts with the the the, the general understanding that EU public procurement law does not force uh, contracting authority to contracting authorities to externalize service performance. So there's no obligation to privatize services. It's always a choice, right? Now, what, where difficulties arise when it comes to public public cooperation is that. Um, some of these arrangements and some of these um, uh, agreements that underlie these corporations actually uh, can be identified as public contracts. 
So because they fulfill that criteria. So that means that even though two municipalities want to work together, the the cooperation between them for, say, waste collection, the classic example, I think, in this sphere, um, might be under an obligation to tender. Now, to solve this, I think, this uh, this problem that arises, uh, some exemptions have been introduced in the into the directives. We always had the exclusive right exemption since the 90s. Um, but later on, and particularly in 2014, we've now got legislation that actually deals with a couple more exemptions. So we have the institutionalized exemption where a, uh, a separate legal entity is, is, a, is established and this type of uh, cooperation by which the cooperation is purely contractual between, uh, between governments. Um, now, what's difficult is that this was an exemption that was introduced in by the court or interpreted by the court, as some purists would say, um, in the case of Commission Germany. And that's where sort of all the problem arise, didn't it, so to, so to speak? That's where the confusion comes in, because I think, I don't know if you agree, but I think we're talking very much about this administrative side of procurement, this self-organization that, that as you, you mentioned, you you know quite a lot about. But when we come into Commission versus Germany and this non-institutionalized exemption, it becomes something that seems to be standing really far away from this original, if we can talk about original uh, concept of what in-house was supposed to be. Yeah, so yeah, it, it, I, I think I'd have to agree with you. Like it really touches upon how national law allows governments to organize themselves. So it's a very much, it can be a private law matter, uh, whether they're limited or public companies that um, that governments use to organize themselves and provide services to their to their citizens or for their own back office services. Um, but the same for public uh, for public law, administrative law, um, is those all provide legal entities and legal forms, but they're very national based, which also meant that like the, the general perception is not very positive when it comes to these um, when it comes to these type of exemptions, that they're always perceived as to being too limiting. Um, and that actually this is something where public procurement law shouldn't have a say. Um, now, I've always been of the understanding that it makes sense that we need to have these exemptions because how do we otherwise differentiate between these types of arrangements, right? Um, because one of the classic issues was also when we talk about bodies governed by public law is national member states might say that this is a government, but in fact, they're not governments, right? So then they might, um, uh, uh, or the other way around, actually, and they, they might miss the, the scope of public procurement law or they might be able to exempt themselves, right? So that's why I think theoretically it makes a lot of sense to say, well, these are public contracts, they fall under the scope of public procurement law. And if they do, then we have a couple of specific exemptions. Now, where difficulty arises is, and that's I think also where these discussions come from, where we say it's too limiting, is the the specific criteria that are adopted um, uh, first by the Court of Justice to say, well, this is an exempted uh, type of non-institutionalized criteria. And now uh, uh, by Article 12 in Directive 2014-24. So it's really a discussion about how should we interpret these criteria that um, first the court introduced in limited amount of case law, which was always difficult, right? We had uh, a handful of cases out of which Commission Germany and Azel Di Lecce was probably, were probably the most prominent ones. Now we have Article 12. Um, and these are actually the first cases. When we talk about Stadtköln, these are the first cases actually interpreting Article 12, Section 4, in which the non-institutionalized exemption was codified. 
So tell us a little bit more about the case. Um, it's uh, terribly complicated. Um, it's, it's one of these cases where I feel very humbled by um, the different jurisdictions that uh, different member states have. Um, but as, as far as I understand, and I'm, uh, you might have to um, allow me to do some terrible translations from Dutch to English, because as far as I'm aware, it's not uh, uh, translated into English, which would surprise me to a certain extent. Um, or at least I wasn't able to find it on, on curia.eu. Um, hopefully that will uh, be published very soon. Uh, Stodkullen is a case uh, that was uh, filed before the, uh, the Court of Justice um, through preliminary ruling and uh, or through preliminary questions, I should say. It's a, it concerns a cooperation between the city of Köln, of Cologne, and uh, Berlin, the city-state or the uh, sectional state. And uh, what occurred in this case is there was an agreement, an existing agreement already in place between Berlin and an IT uh, company, um, uh, Sopra, as, 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 as the case file said, for the provision of software for uh, the management of a fire department. Um, now, what was interesting, and this is where it gets very German, if I may say so, um, uh, the, the, this contract, <laughs> this contract uh, included a clause that this software could be uh, passed on without additional cost to um, other public authorities with security tasks. Um, and based on that clause, then the city of Cologne, or Cologne said, well, Actually, we'd like to get into an agreement with you, Berlin, and we'd like to also use this software. So then in that agreement that was closed, um, Cologne also uh, uh, accepted that it would be a reciprocal relationship. So if they would further develop the software, uh, that would be also given to, to Berlin, right? So it was like a basic software and you, you could add on parts. I mean, I'm not an IT guy. I mean, we barely managed to record this podcast together, so... Um, but there's obviously further development and customization that's required, right? And even the court in the case file says that's actually always necessary with this type of uh, software. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, surprisingly, a competitor... Got angry. Uh, then, uh, uh, sorry? Got angry. Competitor got angry. Well, yeah, just usually how these cases start. Yeah. Uh, and they say, well, actually, um, all fun and games that you decide to close this agreement, but hold on, uh, this, this is not in compliant, compliance with the EU public procurement law. This award of public contract should have been tendered. No? Um, and then uh, the, the, the interesting part starts is um, the question arises, so is Article 12.4, uh, is that applicable in this case? And can we do something um, uh, or can they rely on this, um, on this exemption? Um, I have to have to make sure that everyone's still on board and still on track. Uh, Article 12.4, I can dream it nearly, um, but it, perhaps I think it's useful to, to at least re-repeat uh, re, re what that article actually says. What is in that? Yeah, for sure. So basically, it's a, it has to be a contract that's concluded exclusively between two or more contracting authorities, and they fall outside of the scope of EU public procurement law, as I mentioned, um, if uh, three criteria are fulfilled. So the first one, the contract must establish or implement a cooperation between the partaking contracting authorities. And then, and this is where it gets important, with the aim of ensuring that public services they have to perform are provided with a view to achieving objectives they have in common. Now, please note, public services they have to perform and achieving objective that they have in common, right? So that's an important part. 
Also completely unclear, but anyways, we'll get to that. That's, that's, I was about to sort of jump in and say already the first element that I guess will provide an area of, of confusion, how broadly we understand that, how specifically we understand that, right? What that actually mean? What does it mean? For sure. Yeah. Um, the second um, uh, aspect is that it must concern an implementation uh, of a cooperation that is governed solely by considerations relate, relating to the public interest. And when words like public interest pop up, I think a lot of Ooh. member states read into it whatever they want. Um, it's like and then, Hunger Games open. Exactly. exactly. Let's unleash unleash uh, the war dogs or the unleash open the gates of hell. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. confusing my my. Programs. So many metaphors. <laughs> Um, uh, the, the participating contracting authorities finally uh, their activities by the corporation. Now, Sutkern doesn't go and delve into all of these aspects. Sutkern concerns itself mostly with the first one. So the one where we had this uh, reference to public services they all have to perform and viewing objectives uh, and in viewing of, of achieving objectives they have in common, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot that comes from this case, but um, as in our pre-talk, uh, you already said that I was going to go on to a rant of words. Um, I'll be very short with how so I, I approach this topic. We tried to boil it down to four points, right? Is that correct? Is that correct to say we will look at the definition of public contract, content of cooperation, type of cooperation, favoring a third parties? Did I miss something? No, no, you didn't. But maybe in the meantime, I'll add like, can I add subcategories or? Oh boy, now we go. <laughs> no, yeah, I'll, see, I'll see. No, of course. I'm just, uh, I'm just messing with you. I'm so just trying, you know, to stay on track with the time, right? For, for sure. Okay. So um, uh, the 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 first one, I think we can discuss relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. The court, I think, doesn't say a lot of new stuff when it comes to the type of public contract, other than for teaching purposes, it's quite a nice case because the court really outlines the different aspects of what constitutes a public contract. Um, uh, but what is important is the court says, well, uh, a contract is a public contract. So uh, even though uh, the, the, there's a reference to contract, we're actually talking about public contract. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, we need to look at the the entirety of all of the agreements that that are signed. So it's not just we don't look at one, but we look at the the, the multiple uh, agreements between um, uh, the the Berlin and the the city of Cologne. And then the reciprocity occurs because actually, even though it's it's free, there is something that Berlin gets in return, right? They get the redevelopment of the software. Mm -hmm. So there's a clear financial interest as well. And then the court concludes, well, this is a public contract, right? Without the doubt. Mm -hmm. Um, So more interestingly, I think, is um, the the, the content of the cooperation, which I think is the most difficult aspect of this case. Um, Because the court... (laughs) Uh, and this is where it, it gets, I think, very technical, or at least, well, maybe not technical, that's not the right word. The court re- heavily relies on uh, the, the, the recital, uh, number 33 of the, of the directive, in where, which it says that this type of cooperation, and I'll, I'll quote, um, such cooperation might cover all types of activities related to the performance of services and responsibilities assigned to or assumed by the participating authorities, such as mandatory or voluntary tasks of local or regional authorities. Uh, and then the, it, it goes on. 
Furthermore, this says the services provided by the various participating authorities need not necessarily, need not necessarily be identical. They may also be complementary. Now, this is the second point that I'll get to. But the first point is, the court says, may cover all types of activities related to the performance of services, assigned or assumed, mandatory, voluntary, right? Mm-hmm. The question is, and this relates back to the case law of the Court of Justice, in which the Court of Justice always said, particularly in uh, in Azadi Lecture or Commission Germany, it must concern public tasks they they all have to perform. So in other words, would we say that this is broader right now? It broadens the scope? Is that fair to say? I, this is with the conclusion that the, that the, the, the court draws in this case. Is that yeah. The court actually says, because based on this, this recital, you could still question, well, does this actually change anything? Perhaps it should mm-hmm. still be a, a public task. Um, now, perhaps it still needs to be a public task, but um, based on what the court says, it seems that public service is actually a lot broader than public task. Because what the court says in this case is, and, and this is where I have to rely on my Dutch-English translation capacities, is because it refers to all, all activities, um, it can also concern an ancillary activity, a uh, nevenactiviteit in Dutch, uh, which contributes to the actual performance of a public interest task, which is the basis of the content of a corporation, right? So I think the most important word here, and I think it's fair to say, I look at the French and the German edition, I think ancillary activity is, is, a, is a fairly accurate translation. So and then the question is how you, how you differentiate that, right? Like how, what that actually means again. It's like the big sort of... <laughs> exactly, this is, the, this is yeah. the... Yeah, you can see my face. This is... Yeah. I mean, this is doing my head in. It's also making me feel like I should write about this. But because there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of thought processes that would need to go What is ancillary then? Because in this case, in city, in, in, in this uh, Stadt Cologne case, um, we've got uh, the, the the task that the fire department has, right? This the security task. And then we've got an IT management tool that allows them to operate, that manages their uh, their activities. So the question is, and this is what the court says is, well, if that's an ancillary, ancillary activity that is actually um, necessary for the operation of that public task, so it falls under it. And then it refers to the preamble in which I just, or the recital that I just referred to is um, a voluntary or mandatory uh, assigned or assumed. Uh, the court kind of says, well, these Aspects also funnel fall underneath uh, this um, this uh, this ex- exemption. Now, uh, contracting authorities might be very content with this because there has been a strong uh, a call from these uh, contracting authorities to say, "Well, we don't just want to be able to use the institutionalized exemption for back office services. We also want to use the non-institutionalized." Okay. One, And because the court had always said public tasks that they all have to perform, there needed to be some type of legal basis in the law, perhaps, or in national law saying you have to pick up garbage as a government uh, or um, like a directive, like it was the case in um, uh, a waste directive that yeah. obliged these contracting authorities in Commission Germany to, to, to do this. To provide some type of legitimacy to those activities, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a, so there's an inconsistency in Article 12. One you can use for back offices, the other one you couldn't. Now, the question here is, is can we use Article 12.4 now for back office services? Can cleaning services, are they an ancillary activity for the performance of a city hall? Are IT service always the case? And, you know, now just to very 
very briefly um, just showcase one thing that straight away comes to my mind is then also a question of mixed contracts. Because within the mixed contracts development over over the years, you also um, have this development about elements of a contract that you can and cannot actually separate. And then if you really cannot separate them, you decide them on the basis of the main purpose of the contract. But if you but you know one of, of arguments that I used over over the years in, 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 in my research, in my research publications, that technically you probably actually, if you really want to, can separate all sorts of different elements if you really want to. So then the question is, well, under these circumstances, can it be that some part falls under this non-institutional cooperation and can work as an exa- as an exemption? But some of this sort of, you know, back office or some of those uh, ancillary services actually would not fulfill the, the premises, the requirements, and actually would need to be somehow procured, right? I, I think you're totally on the money when it comes to like these comparisons that because obviously this distinction occurs in multiple places uh, within EU law, but also within public procurement law. So perhaps we can learn from that to be able to fulfill this somewhat vague and I think um, very difficult test to apply with certain amount of legal certainty in practice. Um, I, I think what makes it really uh, um, difficult, particularly because we still have this rule of thumb, right, that it, that exemptions are supposed to be interpreted restrictively. Restrictively, yeah, absolutely. So that makes it difficult in a way to say, well, now all IT services can be provided uh, under this exemption. Yeah, I don't uh, think but, so. But yeah. particularly with this case that is so heavily linked to a security task, where I could see that that type of management tool is absolutely vital for it. And it gets more and more confusing, actually. Um, to top it off, to make you, I don't, I don't want to make you feel miserable, uh, or at least make anyone feel miserable about this case. I think it's, it's actually, a, I think it's a really difficult topic, and I think that's why I'm also quite, quite uh, excited and happy that we're tackling it because I think that majority of people still, uh, with a lot of years of experience within procurement uh, law, uh, whenever they come around these topics, it's as you said, it's, it's, it becomes at some point a little bit like a black box. There are sure. some rulings, but you're not entirely able to grip it. What, how, how to sort of draw this red thread through them, right? For, for absolutely right, and I think just to add to to, to that confusing, then the court said in uh, I mean um, in in sixty one now of this ruling in paragraph sixty one, the court says actually it's unsu- un- we're unsure. <laughs> well, we'll leave it up to the to the referring court. Of course, we're unsure. If this software is not um, actually a public service, mm. so if the software itself is not ancillary, but actually the activity to to which other things can be ancillary, um, because and, and and I'm going to translate again because the 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 activities from from the fire department in in firefighting, technical help, emergencies, and disaster relief to coordinate that, perhaps they're like. In a, inherently linked to uh, fulfilling these security tasks. Mm. So maybe this software is so much linked to the security task of the fire department that itself can be uh, not just a, uh, as the court says, not just an ancillary task or activity. So I, I, oh, that makes it even more difficult, right? We thought yeah. we had a, diff- a differentiation between at least some type of tasks that were definitely in the public interest, say collection of waste, as uh, cleaning services in Piepenbrook were identified as not being that, then we had all this stuff in between. But now maybe ICT or IT services could also be this um, 
They for um, sure somehow will be some of those scenarios such that you cannot really sort of separate and they need to be considered as one whole. But I think at the same time is what you're saying that those are exemptions, so it need to be quite restrictive. I wanted to ask you about one more sort of aspect of, of this case that really um, brought another aspect um, to question, and that is the paragraph uh, 57. So when we started to discuss this issues of type of collaboration, right? So... Are we just specifically are to focus on the joint objective or actually right now this case introduce some questions or clarifications or requirements of actually existing a real type, uh, practical actually type of cooperations? How do you read that case? Well, I mean, it's, it's again, so the, the debate was always based on Azel Dilecha and also the Advocate General in that case is what type of cooperation should it be? Should it be genuine cooperation? Mm. And, and this is also what um, what I think the, the line of the commission was when they proposed this um, uh, this this uh, article in, in in Article 11 at the time of of the proposal for new directive 896. Um, but the court basically says in this case that you can do this individually. Your contribution can be individual or jointly, which seems to infer that you could actually that one part of the cooperation or one one cooperating authority could provide all the services and the rest could just tag along and maybe only pay, right? I'm just reading between the lines because the court is obviously in its reasoning trying to establish that this type of cooperation falls under uh, this uh, un under this exemption. And it's also somewhat unclear why the court needs to refer to this to get to that point. Um, and just to make things more more interesting, perhaps, is there was another case that was ruled uh, uh, ruled upon in Remondis 2. And basically, the court in that case is that just payment to the other uh, contracting authority wasn't sufficient. So, when I look at the preamble then, to add one more source that we can use to interpret this, is it still says a cooperative concept to which the individual contributions, this is, these are my words, have to be complementary. That's what the preamble says. Mm. So what type of cooperation we need to have, the court seems to be uh, kind of uh, indifferent to, to what uh, the, the, the preamble says, and it needs to be complementary. Now, perhaps complementary then means one pays and the other performs, but that's then not in line with the case of Rimondi's or the second version of that. Uh, of but that can ruling. you then define that as a collaboration or cooperation? If, if it's you not... Know, if, if it's not anyhow mm, anything beyond the fact that one pays and other performs... Yes, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you're on the money with your, with your comment. It's <laughs> it's hard. The court says in 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 the rule in this ruling, it's not absolutely necessary. Again, my translation, so don't pin me down on that. But it's not absolutely necessary that this task of the, in the this public task is performed uh, by all of the uh, public entities that participate in the cooperation. So perhaps only three out of five do it, and the rest pays. But that doesn't. Or they do it for free, but the, as we say in Dutch, this, the sun does not rise for free, perhaps. Um, Probably not. But I don't want to go into Dutch stinginess because that no. way you always <laughs> back me for this. I do pick up the tab every now and then, right? Every now. About oh, after, no, no, you do. You do. You absolutely dinner. do. You absolutely do. Okay, let's, let's try to talk about one last thing when it comes to merits of today's episode, and that is the issues of uh, favoring of the parties. In, in in regards to this sort of subject or heading, uh, what I, I are your I loved your, um, your Australian accent there, your third Ooh. parties. 
This is actually. Are you pulling my leg, aren't you? Um, favoring third parties. One of the aspects that does provide clarity, I think, in this case, mm-hmm. it wasn't included Finally. in in, uh, in Article Twelve, uh, Section Four. Um, in Commission Germany, the court did make a reference, like, okay, if you cooperate, fine, we'll exempt it. Um, and of course, I'm par- not I'm, I'm not quoting the court here, um, but we'll exempt it as long as you don't put any uh, private uh, undertakings or economic operators in a favorable position uh, when compared to to other uh, entities. Uh, what the court does is it's quite interesting. Um, also, again, great for teaching. Um, the court basically justifies why it's still going to adhere to its own rulings. So the court basically says, well, the, the directive refers to, to legal uncertainty when it came to public-public cooperation. Um, we had already provided clarity. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a change in approach because this is still all riddled throughout the directive. Think of Article 18 of the directive in which we still can't discriminate uh, parties against each other. So um, this, you still can't favor third parties when it, when it comes to this, um, uh, this exemption. Uh, and in this case, this was obviously a benefit for um, uh, this this software provider, Sopra, that provided the software, that would now get another customer, or potentially a lot of customers, if all of these uh, German scholars have told me over thirty three thousand uh, public wow. authorities in in in, the, in Germany uh, would tag along on this agreement. Because can you imagine the the side benefit to it, right? The oh, benefit definitely. of um, uh, and then one final point. So this was clarity, is how did they actually calculate the value of this contract? Oh, yeah. Now we're going back to our previous episode, right? The, yeah, yeah. How did that they was, do this? That was exactly what I was thinking. And also allowing this, right? Um, just pretty much is a little bit um, contra uh, this notion of actually you having an established max value of a contract or a framework if we're talking about frameworks, right? Because up here suddenly this can just grow and because of the value of, of this type of services, it can just grow, um, it can grow exponentially quite quickly, right? For sure. I mean, if all these 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 authorities tag along, I'm not sure if all 33,000 will do that. I don't know if there's so many fire departments as well, but... Not even half would, of them. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, even if 10 do it, right? Oh, absolutely. Would, well, at least by tenfold, perhaps make it a more valuable contract. Um, so, yeah, that was just a question that I had, but now I've realized I've gone back to your first point. So that doesn't, that means that I haven't added a fifth one. I've stuck to the four, but this was a side comment that I referred to about the first public contract. Is that still within what we agreed? I guess so. I guess so. Um, so, so the good positive aspect about the last bit about um, favoring of third parties that actually uh, we received some sort of clarity. Before we jumped into the dessert, so the sort of lighthearted conversation, um, Willem, if you were to leave our listeners with sort of a couple bullet points of what are the main outtakes of, of where we are these days in regards to the non-institutionalized cooperation, if you could sort of boil it down to some sort of bullet points. Um, super fascinating topic. <laughs> Definitely worth a read on a Sunday night uh, before you're going to bed. Particularly <laughs> Willem's PhD. <laughs> if you, uh, that's, oh, I mean, that's not that's the whole weekend if you want. Um, uh, no, I'll, I'll try to stay humble, but uh, I think 
uh, a bit more clarity, like you say, has been created by this case, but also a lot more confusion. Um, what is the type of cooperation that we need to have? So what should be the individual contributions of the different parties when it comes to this, this exemption? Uh, what is the content of what, what can we put into this exemption? Can it be back office services or not at all? And how do we define the, the question of ancillary activity, which I think is going to be the most difficult one to answer in the years to, to come. Um, uh, and I think that uh, leaves us with a lot of confusion, a bit of certainty, but I suppose that means m more fun work, research and all this type of stuff, fun discussions with practitioners and, um, and students in the future. And then we will probably have in the future another episode on in-house. That's not the topic that sort of will be... Maybe we should just make this uh, an in-house podcast. Oh, God, please not. No, I, I actually think just... that would be quite fun. <laughs> okay, well, let's wrap it up. I need to say that this uh, main dish, in, in, in referring back to the concept of this podcast today, it's, it's, it's quite uh, heavy. It's quite heavy. I think, as you as you yourself pointed out, it's uh, it's it's very tech. It gets very technical when we're starting to look into into um, in house. So thanks so much for providing us with a little bit clarity and structure into this conversation. Um, let's move to the dessert. Let's sort of uh, talk a little bit more of um, more about our academic life, university life. What it, what it is that we're discussing today, though. Uh, so we're sticking to the topic of cooperation, um, uh, but, then co but then, uh, yeah, <laughs> but then not. I, I don't know. Would we call this institutionalized cooperation or non-institution? I have no idea. But Personal, cooperation in active in, in in academia, um, I think this is something that every academic bumps into. So perhaps it's broader than just public procurement uh, law academics. Um, it's I think the first question: one, how do we see this? What's the added value? What are downsides, perhaps? And two, and more specifically, how are uh, single-authored articles uh, so prominently important, particularly with grant applications and stuff, which seems to deter us from cooperating? Mm -hmm. So maybe I can pass the, the, the baton. Do you say that? Ooh, the baton, yeah, baton? I don't know. <laughs> okay. We're doing like a relay. Oh, I'll pass yeah. you the, the mic, even though you have your own, to maybe discuss some of the, I don't know, some, some thoughts on cooperation in academia. Have you experienced that so far? You mean specifically, would you want us to specifically focus on sort of research outputs? Like, Perhaps. right? Or, yeah, let's, let's, let's start with that so, so we can somehow frame it. Um, I think that the first thoughts that come to my mind when you propose this topic were couplefold. I think that it's absolutely brilliant to have an opportunity to collaborate on, let's say, article or book chapter, particularly if you're a younger researcher and have opportunity to work with a colleague or maybe your supervisor, someone who is more experienced uh, because at least on my own example, I know that I learn awfully, awfully a lot. It was nerve-wracking. I still remember one of uh, the first ones that I did, and that was with Professor Martin Trivers. And I was extremely honored that he agreed to write an article with me. At the same time, I was extremely, extremely stressed that I will come across as someone ill-equipped or not knowing enough or that it will be just, you know, lame or what it was. It was quite stressful by, by going through, you know, drafts and the comments that he would post to some of my sections and what he would pay attention to. It was extremely rewarding, educational, and I think that I've been better researcher 
um, and it definitely taught me a, a lot. So I think from that perspective, I see um, great, great um, value in it. On other hand, side, I think maybe maybe, maybe just to interrupt, I've actually yeah? found a new topic that we can also discuss. I think yeah? I'd love to talk to you about imposter syndrome and like oh, feeling yeah. shitty oh, in Jesus academia. Then then we need a whole podcast on that. <laughs> no. It's, on, on average, it's quite a lot of fun, but there's stuff to be improved. But sorry, I interrupted you. But yeah, this yeah. Is, can I just note this publicly that we'll do this one day? As well? Sure, sure, not a problem. And then a second thing that I would want to sort of, uh, you know, throw the ball back to you is this discussion about well, how much value you put, or institutionally wise, because I think this is the important part. Also, if this is a um, sort of institution that provides grants, give grants, or if it's your own university or even system uh, of universities, how, how much value is, is, is put towards collaborative publication versus singular ones. I know that I heard from several colleagues from different jurisdictions that actually when it comes to all this point scoring in their systems, if I remember correctly, that's the case, for example, in Great Britain, that actually they don't really get many points in, in, in their reference systems them for collaborative uh, publications. So from that point, you know, they, they really need the single author publication to kind of hit the quotas. Um, so I think that this is also really important, what motivates us in context of these requirements that we need to fulfill, right? Yeah, um, for sure. I think um, some of the Dutch uh, context also relates to what you're describing about the UK. Um, I, just, just to reflect on what you said uh, in your first comment, uh, I think by far, joint publications are the most frustrating thing to do in terms <laughs> of writing. Um, but in the end, I think the final product is generally better than it yeah. would have been, or at least that's what you hope for, right? Sometimes it can also be like, oh, well, we've watered down some arguments or whatever. That's also possible. But um, because someone else is so critical of your own work, even more than they would be if they're reading your work when it's just for a, a sport piece, I think that does provide value. Um, uh, so I always, when I, I'm always very enthusiastic about working with someone. Then whilst, when we start writing, I get a bit frustrated because I'm like, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's not how I would have written it. I think it's and also I, style a bit, right? You need to combine sure. the styles because you need to kind of ensure also that the text sort of flows and you can have two people writing in a very different way and it sort of becomes blocked and chopped. So the process in itself of writing for sure can be quite a, uh, Quite, Quite uh, difficult, yeah, for yeah. sure. And then try, uh, there's some economists or I should say um, public purchasing academics working at our research center as well. We'll try working with them. They don't even, oh, use, yeah. the, they don't even use the right um, type of referencing, they do end notes. <laughs> Um, no, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I think when you throw on top of all of it, definitely also like this multidisciplinary publications, uh, when people, it from, becomes very difficult for yeah. sure. But, um, to, to stick to what you bounce back to me, um, I, that's something that's definitely present in the, in the Dutch system as well. The cooperation in general is, I think, valued when it comes to grant proposals, um, because you need to build consortia when it comes to interdisciplinary work, when it comes to overcoming boundaries between departments, between faculties and all this type of stuff. Um, but in the end, when you publish, um, uh, or at least when I start writing grant proposals, uh, the, the first thing I get back from reviewers is, oh, well, uh, you've got a nice, nice work, blah, blah, blah. But these are perhaps ranked a bit lower because they're with someone else. Now, I get their issue because 
if we look at science at science or academia as a very individualist individualistic mm-hmm. tripping over my own words concept we need to establish uh, if we accept that we need to establish who did the thinking so uh, who did I'm, the work i'm i may need i may oh, i really don't know if i should be saying that but maybe we'll cut it out but i think a whole different thing that is a very delicate subject around any type of collaboration that i think people are not particularly good with is from the very beginning for example deciding on what is the order of office sure. you know is it the workload is it the alphabetical order is it the so seniority and are you writing are you right which i really loved for example on that article that i mentioned that i wrote with martin is that actually in a footnote there was very specifically pointed out who wrote which section yeah and i think I mean, it's such a, great, a you know, great great way of solving it right and and i think particularly again for the younger uh researchers that that also is quite important right because maybe for for someone it's a first or a second publication and it really matters but if they fourth fifth author let's say and and they wrote larger part of it and the first ones are people who are well established you know i think it's very sensitive it's very delicate i don't really have a right answer to that i'm just sort of to add a layer of com- complexity to discussion about cooperation right for sure and i think it uh, i mean it, what's even more difficult i think in 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 the legal uh, legal academia is we don't have these strict rules that you need to be able to read uh, the 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 order of 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 uh, academics when you see them in say medical journals yeah the second one's the f- I, i can't remember actually the second one is the one that they did the most the fifth one is the one that provided the lab the seventh is the one that we don't have anything like that no right? so for us i think i mean as g- in general this is the way i look at it it's first author that perhaps matters a little bit but then again that comes with a lot of backlog of uh hierarchy seniority uh all this type of stuff so the way i look at it um and also what's interesting i find that people that have a last name that starts uh, with an a or a b generally go for um, alphabetical <laughs> uh, not not saying anyone that uh, would probably implement this i don't know if your last name would be unthoff perhaps you would oh, go for yeah. that okay. um no i'm just i'm just pulling your leg but uh, i do see that sometimes um uh, i think or at least the way i look at it it's an open concept we work together and if we work together we look at where some of the ideas come from who's put in the most effort and let's have the dialogue and i don't really care if you're super senior or not obviously this leads to con- conflict up going up the ladder but i think that's perhaps a way to go forward um and even though i also liked your uh, your approach to what you just mentioned is to really clearly outline who did what um but i think we need to at least as a first step have an open debate about uh, i think this is so system. you know if if out of this like little side uh, conversation in today's episode something would to come out i think that i probably would advocate as a as a bullet point from from this part of conversation to actually have a conversation about some of those elements right because the interest may be different uh of different authors and and the views may be different and sometimes you hear about those stories that some of these um, issues come out in the very end when the publication is to be published mm-hmm. and suddenly someone who was all the time you know of their impression that they go kind of first because that's like 
you know, the postdoctoral article or whatever come third or fourth. And, and, and because of some of these hierarchical discussions and, and challenges, it, it, you know, it becomes really messy. Address that from the very beginning and, and be open. And I think that uh, to, to, to conclude that it's, um, you for sure in a way need to, uh, need to collaborate these days, if that is for funding, if that is for all these different paths uh, to develop your research and, and, and your career. But it is uh, it is difficult, difficult process of spending some time ahead of time to actually agree maybe to um, agree on some of those procedural or technical or administrative elements can actually ease it and, and help out. Yeah, I think one one bit of uh, uh, cooperation that is probably the most difficult is to do a podcast together, right? I think that's uh, that's the cooperation that we've struggled with so far the most. Um, I won't but... agree with you, actually. I think that you're very <laughs> easy to work with, actually. I, I, you know, I wasn't which... looking for compliments. I was trying to be sarcastic, but no, you didn't pick up on my... No, I didn't pick up on it. We had too long break, I think. I think that the most challenging was actually the project that we also worked together. I think there was around 12 of us, and we were sort of writing the report all together yeah, sure. with whole different people from different disciplines and also practitioners and everyone having a totally such a different background and so on and getting all of this sort of text to somehow work and make sense was it was quite difficult but as as you said before at the same time i think one of the most rewarding in the end when the when the product came out for sure and let me clarify to anyone that didn't pick up my sarcasm before i love doing this podcast with you i look forward to every episode i don't mind you the like. technical <laughs> <laughs> no, just joking. No, it was a pleasure to uh, to come back and to do another podcast. I'm getting into the zone again. Let's, uh, yeah. let's start recording another one very soon. Yes, absolutely. And to our listeners, forgive us if, if we sound a little bit rusty. We had a little bit of a break, but we but we back. We're ready, and we're excited to to get on schedule and provide you with some new episodes uh, pretty soon. So um, thanks so much. This was the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestecpodcast.com. 